0: It's the 12th of January, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, what happens when our patients go to surgery? Calcium and vitamin D may not be all that it's cranked up to be, and yes, you actually can predict immune-related adverse events in patients receiving checkpoint inhibitors. A lot of that's in the news lately. The top of the news is an interesting story about what happens when orthopedists sort of double book and try to do surgery? I don't know if you're aware of this practice. I wasn't. But this study from JAMA talked about hip replacement surgeries being done on patients with hip osteoarthritis um, and the hazards of doing overlapping surgeries, a practice wherein the supervising or head physician, head surgeon, does two or more simultaneous surgeries and supervises the surgeries done by other patients. The outcomes here were were complication rates. And and in fact, they showed significantly higher complication rates, 90% more complications when this practice went into effect. And those are complications all observed within the first year. Obviously not a good practice to double book and do overlapping surgeries. Dan Solomon and colleagues looked at the cost of care and updated cost of care analysis. This is a a meta-analysis of of many, many papers. It turns out that uh, uh, there were very few that qualified, 12 out of the hundreds they looked at, and only a third of these had what they called good quality data. They showed that the total medical cost of caring for someone with rheumatoid arthritis was uh, $12,509 for all RA patients. It was actually higher if you're on a biologic DMART, in fact, three times higher, $36,000, Uh, And that RA-specific costs were only $3,700 for all RA patients, but up to $20,000 for biologic DMARDS. Again, the cost of care in RA has gone up over time. The cost of care has been supplanted uh, by uh, the biologics. It used to be the cost of care was driven by hospitalizations and surgery. Now it's the cost of the biologics, the cost of the drug therapy. A new study uh, looked at... uh, Familiar million Mediterranean fever patients from an Israeli population, and just in a population analysis of 8,534 8, 8, 8, patients, they saw that the r- risk of developing cancer was in fact lower amongst these FMF patients. The standardized incidence ratio was uh, 34% lower compared to the general population, uh, which is kind of novel because as you know, inflammation drives cancer risk. Almost all the diseases we take care of have some kind of cancer risk. And it's usually not from the drugs, it's usually from the therapy, it's usually from the disease itself, the inflammation itself. And these studies suggest well, you know, it may be different in, in disorders of innate immunity, such as FMF and autoinflammatory syndrome, compared to disorders of adaptive immunity, which is what you see with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. So the question is is it a, a difference between involvement of the inflammasome or adaptive immunity? One other explanation for this data could be and they, uh, the, 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 the effect of therapy, yeah, and they did not look at that. They were not able to look at that in this particular study. But let's just say these FMF patients were effectively treated with uh, effective therapies, many of which could have involved IL-1 inhibition or uh, drugs to control inflammasome activity. Uh, and we do know from a recent study, um, the study of, um, of catechinamab where it was used to treat patients with heart failure, it was showed that it did reduce heart failure and cardiac events. It was also shown that patients on canakinumab, the IL-1 inhibitor, in heart uh, at-risk cardiac patients only, they had a lower risk of cancer, especially lung cancer, uh, which has now led to such therapy being tried in cancer trials. So could it be that this lower cancer risk in these FMF patients was because they were being treated? Uh, again, I think we need more data on this, but I think it's a very uh, interesting finding. Recently announced data from Horizon about its product uh, Pegavodicase shows that uh, uh, up until recently they were bringing in about over $400 million in sales, and they project in 2018 to do uh, 750 million or above. This uh, parallels the number of patients who have been treated with this drug has increased from 50,000 to nearly 100,000. So. Uh, again, our, our, uh, early on, there was a lot of uh, um, hesitancy about using pegloticase to treat patients with severe refractory gout. I think physicians learning more about this drug, showing that, in fact, it can be effective therapy. Um, a tidbit, uh, and this is from my own clinic, I was, I, I use laflinamide just like all of you, um, but I might use it differently. And that's because uh, of my working on the drug in clinical trials, understanding the, the um, the biology of the drug, turns out leflinamide has a very long half-life. It's uh, somewhere between 18 and 20 days. Uh, As such, it would be a great drug for not once a day dosing, but once a week dosing. And this is what I, in fact, do in a majority of patients who are on stable doses of leflinamide. So I will start them on 20 milligrams daily, as all of you, monitoring the same way. But after they achieve a response, which is usually 6 to 12 weeks, uh, and they're on a stable dose. I will switch to once-weekly dosing. I will also switch to once-weekly dosing if patients are having problems with either GI symptoms or hypertension or hair loss, in which case, I will lower the dose, and they'll get receive 80 milligrams or 100 milligrams or 60 milligrams once a week and see if that will be enough to control them. So when I switch to once-a-week dosing, I use 20-milligram tablets. I say take four or five or six tablets once a week every Friday and patients do very well in switching over from daily dosing to weekly dosing. Uh, there is no loss of effect. And you still continue to monitor the patient uh, as you normally would in your clinic and still monitor their labs in the same manner. That's, I think, a helpful way of using the drug leflunomide. Uh, a recent study of, of Swedish construction workers, over 300,000 of them, um, looked at uh, their the incidence of lumbar spinal stenosis surgery. Uh, and this is a very uh, large cohort followed for over 31 years. And in the end, they found that 1,600 plus patients went on to receive spinal stenosis surgery. And curiously, they find that the rates are highest than those who are heavy smokers. Now, what does that mean? Um, again, it could be that just heavy smokers is a, is a, um, is a surrogate for those who have more disease, uh, more comorbidities, um, less attention to healthcare maybe less attention to uh, healthcare services. Um, It could also be that this is like a lot of studies what we see where you're dredging for a p-value. You put a large cohort in, you try to find out what's significant. And I I often wonder about how real such studies are. It reminds me of all the studies about coffee and, and the associations of coffee with pancreatic cancer and all kinds of things. Again, it's hard to tell in these post hoc sort of population um, analyses, especially when it's in claims data. But that's out there. You know, your construction workers should stop smoking so they don't have to have lumbar surgery, I guess would be the take-home message. Gabapentinoid use, as you know, is sort of widespread. A few years ago, it was only about 1%. And now in 2015, it's gone to 3.9% of adults. Uh, and that uh, is not, uh, is I think I guess it owes to a lot of these off-label indications for gabapentin uh, for the management of, of, of pain and of uh, uh, I mean, it's primary indication, of course, was for seizures, but it's gone on to be used for pain, for sleep, for um, migraine headaches, et cetera. So again, gabapentinoid use is taking over, especially in an era when uh, opioid doses or opioid use is actually declined. So this may be the new substitute. Uh, um, another study, interesting study from Canada, looks at uh, those exposed to lefinamide during pregnancy. So in, in the Canadian healthcare databases between 1998 and 2015, they found over 300 or almost 300,000 uh, uh, pregnancies, um, uh, rheumatoid pregnancies. And amongst those, there were 51 who had received leflunomide within the first trimester of the pregnancy diagnosis. There was another 21 patients who received laflunamide in the second and third trimester. And, and interestingly, uh, there's no increased risk of spontaneous abortion malformations, prematurity, or low birth weight. This is a follow-on to the data that was published out of Otis, um, commissioned originally by Aventus to study the effects of Liflunomide on pregnancy. And it took them many years, and I think they only had about 70 different cases. But they also did not show an increased rate of malformations or uh, fetal complications when patients were exposed, uh, the infant was exposed to Liflunomide. It still remains a serious risk. The patient should not get pregnant while on the flutamide. On the other hand, those who do, both of these studies would suggest that the outcomes will probably be okay for both the mother and the child. Uh, a recent study, as you know, last week on, the, on our website, we had a lot of discussion about uh, these new checkpoint inhibitors and uh, what happens with them as far as developing immune related adverse events. The last week's uh, report featured uh, uh, some discussion and, a, and a, um, uh, a commentary by Len Calabrese about what happens when you give these checkpoint inhibitors to patients with autoimmune disease. And in fact, 75% of them will develop these immune-related adverse events, arthritis, myositis, hypophysitis, etc. Well, there's an interesting study this week in PNAS that looks at, I'm sorry, this is ju- the Journal of Clinical Investigation, that looks at the ability to predict these autoimmune adverse events when receiving checkpoint inhibitors. And this was done in a small cohort of, of 39 or so melanoma patients who were receiving either inhibitors of CTLA4 or PD1 or PDL1. Um, and during the after they did studies before and after the first cycle of therapy, and they showed there were significant declines in B cell numbers and an increase in CD21 low B cells and also plasma blasts. So it's thought that this could be a significant. Uh, change that is you, know, you can monitor and may be able to predict uh, and and do something about these uh, potentially harmful adverse events. What they did show was that the early development of these B-cell changes were associated with higher uh, rates of grade three and grade four immune-related adverse events. This all occurred within the first six months of receiving either one of those drugs or a combination of those drugs. So it's an interesting development. A lot, there's a problem with these patients. They their identification is getting easier, but their treatment still remains hard. A new report from the CDC talks about how, how good uh, physicians are at counseling their patients on exercise when they have arthritis. In this particular study, they looked at the data from the 2002 and 2014 National Health Interview Survey, NHIS, um, that involved over 36,000 adults. These are telephone surveys. And what they showed was that that in 2002, about 50% of patients received guidance from their physician about exercise when they had arthritis. This grew by almost 18% to 61% in 2014. This is still, uh, while that's good growth and a significant improvement, these uh, numbers fall far behind current guidelines and uh, CDC guidelines for exercise counseling. It is estimated that even patients who are uh, maybe more inactive, may have even greater, um, uh, a greater loss or, or deficit in receiving such instruction. The point is that we need to program this into our daily lives. When patients have such uh, findings, we need to counsel them in a sort of uh, predictable manner. The, the authors recommend a website. They also recommend maybe programming this into the, um, the, the electronic medical record. Another study looked at what happens when early RA patients um, are studied with regard to adverse events. This comes from the the NEO-RACO study. 98 early RA patients were followed over time. uh, And again, these had very early RA. They actually averaged um, 5.5 adverse events uh, in the course of this one-year study. They had an 8% risk of developing a severe or serious adverse event. Uh, And 24% actually led to these adverse events led to drug discontinuation. Uh, What they really found that was sort of uh, interesting and surprising was that with increasing uh, um, tertiles of DASH-28 activity, with increasing disease activity, there were higher rates of SAEs, serious adverse events, NAEs, suggesting that, again, it may not be the drugs that are driving risk in many of these patients It may be comorbidity. It may be disease activity. It's a complicated uh, equation that leads to why someone will have an adverse event and then discontinue the drug, either temporarily or permanently. And lastly, there's a report from JAMA that did a meta-analysis systematic review of 31 randomized clinical trials with over 51,000 participants to look at the influence of oral calcium and or oral vitamin D supplementation on the risk of hip fracture and they compared that to those who either received a placebo or received no therapy at all. And they showed that there was no significant risk. In fact, the, if you compare the risk of hip fracture for those who received vitamin D or calcium, the, the relative risk is 1.53. And it, it overlaps from 0. 0.97 to 2.42. Looking at the confidence intervals, that's just for calcium, vitamin D. It's a little bit lower. So it seems to be a little bit of a trend, but it's not significant. In fact, it's even lower. If you look at the combination of vitamin D and uh, and calcium as it's in, as it may influence hip fracture, where the relative risk is only 1.09, and again this co- this covers this uh, uh, goes between um, zero and and 1.4. So the bottom line is that the routine use of vitamin D and calcium, especially in elderly people, community populations, doesn't seem by itself to reduce the risk of one of the things we're most concerned about, that being uh, uh, hip fractures and disability from that. That's it for Room Now. And um, go to the website. You can actually get the links to these studies and read more about these studies. I'll also encourage you, for those uh, who don't know about it, the, the um, RWCS meeting is coming up in Maui. As you know, RWCS is a, uh, an annual meeting run by Dr. Cavanaugh and George Martin. Uh, And it's a wonderful meeting that starts on uh, February the 7th and goes through the 10th. Um, Now uh, there's a few slots left for those of you who may be interested in going. Uh, The faculty every year uh, turns over. We have new um, uh, grand teachers who we call the Kahuna. uh, And I think this year's faculty and the program you'll find is really exciting. You can see more about that at R-W-R- like it's RWCS with dashes in between R. -R 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 w dash c dash s dot com but that was tough anyway see you next time bye